Hello and welcome to another episode of Promoted and Paid. I'm Samuel Lawrence, your host. And today I'm very, very excited to introduce all of our listeners and watchers to Sir Kenneth Elisa. Sir Kenneth, thank you for uh, taking the appointment. Yeah, you're a very esteemed individual and I can't wait for everybody to hear about you. So, you know, I, I've been reading about you for months. <laughs> and so I'm not going to give the background of what I know, but I'll, I'll do that in my questions. But it would be great for everybody listening just to hear a little bit about you, mm-hmm. you know, about your journey, where you were born, your heritage, and a bit about where you are today. I know if we were to go for all your honours and awards, yeah. we could do probably three episodes on that alone. But um, mm-hmm. if you could give us a bit of brief background and then we'll go into a bit more detail in the questions. It's actually very simple. I am the product of a Nigerian father and an English mother. They met just after the war. They had me and my father went back to Nigeria, so I never knew my father. So I was growing up in a classic single-parent family in the 50s and the 60s. It's very hard in the 21st century to imagine what life is like in the 50s, and particularly the 50s, actually. I was born only six years after the end of the Second World War, so the the country was devastated, really. In fact, my favourite place to play, as I'm fond of reminding everybody, was a bomb site i.e. a place where bombs are dropped and then the council knocked down all the buildings because they're unsafe. Yeah. But it's paradise for a small boy. <laughs> so, I, so I grew up in, anyway, in a single-parent family in Nottingham, state-educated. I went to the local junior school and then secondary school, yeah. passed my 11 plus, went to grammar school. And I was lucky enough to get from there to Cambridge, at Fitzwilliam College, Cambridge, clear the top college in the university. So I got to Fitzwilliam College, Cambridge. Yeah. studied a, a range of subjects. We may come back to that later. Yeah. But I studied a range of subjects. I was lucky enough, again... Spot an opportunity, and I got a scholarship from IBM, an industrial scholarship, when I was at university, which paid for my education and gave me lots of pocket money as well. And I went to work for IBM afterwards. First of all, as a programmer analyst, designing systems and implementing them for customers, and then as a salesman. So we have something in common here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and actually, I often tell people that one of the best ways to get started in a career is to be a salesperson, right. because unlike an accountant, for example, you understand why nothing works. Whereas an <laughs> accountant understands why everything works, but they're not quite sure why. Yeah. Anyway, so I was a salesman. I then moved into marketing, left IBM, went to work for a company called Wang Labs, now sadly defunct, but I was uh, I ran marketing there. And then I went off and ran European marketing. Then I went to America and I ran American marketing, which was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. If you ever work for an American company, you know that all the instructions come from America. Yeah, for once in my life, I was at the other end of the fire. So that, was, that was a very happy time. I then came back as general manager of Europe after the Middle East. So there's a yeah. strong parallel, I think, with your career here. Yeah. Except for the Cambridge bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I didn't quite go to yeah, Cambridge. Yeah. And, uh, and then I left there in uh, when it was now late 1990s uh, and started my own company, which I floated, company called Interregnum. And I left there in the mid sorry, early 2006. And started this company, Restoration Partners. So that's my. So I really had four jobs in my in my life, yeah. and then around all that, well, I've been a non-executive director on all sorts of companies. I've been involved in charities. I've started a charity. Yeah. I'm chairman of a very big charity, and I've done some public service. Uh, I was a regulator, uh, regulating the postal market. Then Royal Mail's monopoly was broken up, and we had to do the licensing for the new people. Very interesting. Yeah. I sat on NHS Trust board for a, a few years, three years, yeah. and I was legendarily a member of the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority, sorting out MPs' expenses. So, oh, okay. career, a business of my non-exec and so on around it, yes. and then a lot of charity and public service. Okay, thank you for that overview. There's some questions that I have about some of the changes that you made in your career. But one of the one of the questions I think a lot of people are wondering is, what does it mean to be Lord Lieutenant of Greater London? 
Well, the first thing it means is you constantly have to correct people and say, oh, left tenant. <laughs> oh, left tenant, sorry. It's a, it's a yes. constant. But it's quite normal. Yeah, yeah. But it's, in, it's very interesting. So few people know what a law left tenant is, yeah. even though it was Henry VIII who introduced the concept in the book 500 years ago. And it, then it was his representative in each county. Okay. At a time when the sheriff had become very powerful, they collected the taxes, they ran the judiciary and so on. And essentially what he did, he being Henry VIII, capital H, but what he did all the way back then was to give somebody the job of quelling riots and raising the army. Okay. So right up until the early parts of the 20th, 20th century, you would hear about county regiments, you know, the Lancashire Regiment, the whatever regiment, Somerset Regiment, and they were raised by the Lord Lieutenant. Okay. So it was an extension of the military. Obviously, the military has become much more professionalised now, and yeah. don't need buffers like me to do it without <laughs> raising, raising the army. And the police have become much more civilised as well. So I don't do that. But the concept of upholding the dignity of the monarchy remains. So it's in essence what a Lord Lieutenant does. And there are 98 of us, one for every county. Okay. And what we do is we find ways to, well, not essentially, we find ways to communicate Her Majesty's messages mm-hmm. across the nation, which are essentially about service and duty. Okay. So I'm very much involved with the cadets organisations across London. Yeah. For example, I'm president of the Reserve Force and Cadets Association. I'm president of something called the YOU, which stands for Youth in Uniform. Okay. Uh, and that's very much sort of quasi-military. Mm-hmm. I present awards, I give medals out on behalf of Her Majesty the Queen. Yeah. I attend things, I cut ribbons and so on. But as a very minor, minor extension of, of Her Majesty's objective. And, but more importantly, from my perspective, it gives me an enormous lever to be able to do good in London. And so I'm trying to help charities that are doing things already amplify their efforts by bringing them together, by speaking for them, by going to fundraisers, okay. and so on. And my strategy for that, called Building Bridges, available on my left tenancy website, uh, stands on three legs, faith, occupation, and heritage, which I think are the three principal definers of somebody, you know, one's personality. If you ask me about, meet me at a party, ask me a question, you're probably going to find out where I come from, what my job is, and if we get that far, what my faith happens to be. And so I've got a focus on those three areas, trying to find charities, as I say, and other people, bringing money to them, just generally gluing bits to do with, with society. And uh, it gives me enormous privilege. So it's yes. brilliant. Yeah. And then the other side of it is meeting members of the royal family. Whenever a member of the royal family comes to a camp, my county, London, yeah. then either I or one of my 100 deputies is there to greet them to make sure everything goes well make sure the visitors are success and to say goodbye to them, yeah. which means, well, just for example, I've got to go to the James Bond premiere in the Albert Hall. Oh, really? I'm a big but, fan of James Bond. Right? <laughs> so, so I'm watching it on the premiere night in the Albert Hall. But, yeah. but that was a meeting the Royal Family when they arrived, the, the princes, yeah. making sure everything went well and saying goodbye to them when they, when they went, and in between the two watching the film. Okay, and again, I'm, I'm kind of reversing the order here, but how did you come to be appointed Lord Lieutenant? It was a process, is it, something, is it something you were aiming for or did they reach out to you? No, no, I certainly wasn't aiming for that. <laughs> for two reasons, for that would be unspeakably arrogant, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's secondly, I'm embarrassed to say, I didn't know there was a law left there to Greater London. <laughs> I, I knew law left there. I knew about the process. I didn't yeah. realise that London actually had one of its own. Okay. So no, so even if I had uh, wanted to apply to it, I wouldn't have known where to, how to go about it. Yeah. But no, that's, that's not how I'd start. No, I, I was approached by the, the man whose job it is to, to find bishops, law lieutenants, etc., etc., okay. who's the clerk to the Privy Council, who'd taken soundings around the county to find a nominee who met the criteria that Her Majesty and the then Prime Minister, David Cameron, had laid down for 
for the role. Okay. And it was a short list, and I was lucky enough to be the person chosen. Oh, amazing. Amazing. That's, that's fantastic. Even when you talk about the background that you came from, you know, to, to rise to the level that you are today and have the accolades that you have is just it's so inspirational. And I'm sure that a number of our listeners will be looking up to you just thinking, you know, one day that I want to be like that. And so a lot of my questions are along that line. Yeah. Right. And so just one more about an accolade you've got, and then we can talk a bit more around the, the your work life. But the Order of the British Empire mm-hmm. that was awarded um, because of the, your services yeah. to the homeless. What was it about the services to the homeless that you did that got that recognition? Right. So, well, first of all, I think let's let's just define homelessness first of all, or its position in the country. Okay. I, I think that the way a nation treats its most vulnerable is a big measure of whether it's a great nation or a weak nation. Yeah. And I lived abroad for a few years. I mentioned, and, and when I was when I went abroad, I left the country to go abroad, which is like 1986. There were homeless people in London. I lived and worked. There weren't that many, so you would see them around from time to time. But when I came back in the early 1990s, there seemed to be homeless people everywhere. Mm. Shop doorways at night time and so on. It was dreadful. And I had a rant at my then assistant about how awful this was and something needed to be done. And she connected me with a homeless charity. Uh, the story goes on a bit longer than that because, in fact, she didn't connect me. She got me a donation form. And I said, no, no I want to do something. <laughs> yeah. And her friend in the homeless charity said, tell your boss that if you, in this country, when people say they want to do something, they generally mean they want to give 10 quid. Unless <laughs> so you, you want to do something, come and meet us. Yeah. So I, I went off and, and met the people in the, in the homeless charity. Uh, it was so dreadful. So, so again, I mean, it, it, it's quite an emotional subject for me, really, because mm. if, if your self-esteem is strong, and you are doing well, you've got this kind of spiral and you can do anything, the world is your oyster. Yeah. But if you start to slide down that, that, that helter-skelter of self-esteem, you end up at the bottom. I think you end up on the street. I think that is the definition of the worst example of, oh, of self-esteem. Okay. Living in a shop door, having people urinating on you at night time, you know, that, I mean, mm. that is the end of self-esteem. Yeah. And, and I met these people who's, who, through, sometimes through their own fault, it has to be said, but essentially not to any fault of their own, mm-hmm. had found themselves on, and unable to stop falling down that spiral. So I met people who at school had been so bullied that they couldn't study. I met right. people at school who were so dyslexic that they couldn't read and were deemed oh, stupid. Right. And so essentially were seen as troublemakers. Yeah. And once that starts, you start yeah. to be on the spot. I met a man who had got his girlfriend pregnant age 16, left school, got married, did the right thing, was a labourer, was earning money, realised actually this was a really useless way having made a mess of his life, mm. studied to be a probation officer, passed at night school while being a labourer in the day, passed his exams, went out with all the people who passed the exams to a pub, got, had too much to drink, a fight happened, police come, fight the police, bloke gets banged up in front of the magistrate, he's given a criminal uh, conviction, suddenly he can no longer be a probation worker. <sighs> so so he was, he, he's doing his best, you know. Yeah, always, so now, you could say that was his fault, he shouldn't have got drunk, shouldn't have got in the fight, but, you know, there but for the grace of God go, Certainly, yeah. most of the people I know. So it's 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 a matter of luck and chance, mm. mad luck and chance, and it just seemed terrible. So helping those people, so it just really struck something inside me. Yeah. So I originally joined. Um, I just actually annoyingly, I thought I'd do soup runs or something helpful. Yeah. And the chief, the chief executive said, "No, no, would you join the board? Because we need as a charity to become much more business like." Okay. And I think, no, no, no. You know, like these terribly upset people I need to be able to help them yeah. and she said no you will be able to help them if we can become more business like because we can be more efficient we can be more effective but I joined the board I became chairman I was chairman for a very long time during which this organisation which is called Thames Reach 
grew and grew and grew, both in size, but more importantly, in its influence in the policy universe. And, and as I was the chairman, this being the nature of these sorts of things, yeah. um, I, I ended up being recognised and being given an OBE. Wow, that's amazing. And do you, so the way that you see homelessness today, um, do you still see it as a huge problem that we are trying to tackle as a country? Or um, yes, well, it's yes. Very... No, it's a huge problem. Very interestingly, there's an amazing lady called Dame Louise Casey, who is, who is a firebrand in all kinds of ways, who was the homelessness czar all that time ago when I first got involved with the sector. And when the pandemic happened, she went into the Ministry of Housing and Local Government and said, you know, this is our once-in-a-lifetime chance. We can't have all these people, vulnerable people out on the streets. We've got empty hotels. Let's get them off the streets into hotels. And so for a brief period of time, we had no homelessness in the UK because people went into hotels. Unfortunately, unfortunately, that position has been reversed as the hotels have gone back to being hotels, et cetera, et cetera. But we've demonstrated it's possible. Because there is a a mad theory that says people who live on the streets want to live on the streets. It's clearly not the case. There might be somebody, one or two people, looking like that. But but even they've probably got a mental health problem rather than a real desire to live on the streets. But the vast majority of them have had the kind of life-changing experience that I just described a moment ago. So we we now know it's possible. Uh And we got very close to reducing homelessness in London town down to a manageable number, a small number in the time I was on, on the board, and we were only one of many charities doing, doing the work. So it's possible, mm-hmm. it, but it does need a real national effort to do yeah. it. And it's it's very complicated. So I gave you some examples yeah. of yeah. kind of native Brits who had that problem, but we've got people who immigrated to the country are not eligible for benefits and so on, so they haven't right. got anywhere else to... You know, it's, it's a more complicated subject. Right. But, but I, I go back to my point. Anybody that's living in a shop doorway or, or whatever, you know, that's, that's a symptom of something that's wrong. Yes, society at large. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Just to switch gears a bit, going back to I know that homelessness society is your is your passion. Going back to your work life to help those of our listeners that are looking at how they get promoted. So my first question is around you going from marketing director up to like senior VP or VP level. Mm-hmm. What was the process behind that? You know, did you do anything different there, or what, what happened? What was senior VP? <laughs> it was senior VP. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> I'm only a VP. I, so I, I, I'm, I'm still know, trying to get there. <laughs> yeah. To go from marketing director to senior VP, what was was there just was it just opportunistic? What what happened? How did you manage that jump? Well, there's a link between your last question about homelessness and the answer to that question. So why do I care about people who are at the bottom of that spiral I was just talking about? Because it's a waste. It's a waste of their talent. It's a waste of their lives. It's a waste of everything. They're not fulfilling their potential. Because you are down there doesn't mean you're not a human being. And clearly, you're not fulfilling your potential if you're living in a shop doorway and begging for food. Yeah, of course. And, and what really drives me is finding ways to help people fulfill their potential. Okay. So, so the underlying Alyssa theme, if you will, what drives me for social mobility, the other things that I do, is helping people fulfill their potential. If you're actually not really very good at anything, that, you know, that's, and that is the limit of your potential, at least you've tried, and, that, and that's where you are. And we should help you to, to compensate for things that you can't do. But there's so many people of talent and capability yeah. who don't, for one reason or another, achieve their potential, and, and that annoys me, and that's, that is my sort of personal drive. And so in, in my context, I, I've had that problem, of course, so yeah. in my context, <laughs> I, I mean, I, 
how did I end up doing everything, starting out from being a programmer all those years ago in IBM? Yeah. It's about looking for opportunity. It's about working really hard. It's about being good at your job. It's about networking. It's about knowing people. It's about that self-confidence point that, that I was making. So, you know, I've had lots of low moments, lots of, lots of really fed up moments, terrifying things. I've been, I've been fired from a, from a job, which is really, really, really demeaning. You know, that's one of those things that can get you going down the spiral that I was talking about. So, mm. so my life, if I did a, a graph of my life, it isn't a straight line. It's, right. it's a line, it's a line that looks like that. Okay. The answer to the question then is, I think when you're going that way, you need to know you're going that way and do something about it. And when you're going that way, don't think it's just you. It's you plus a lot of other factors. And, and you must understand all of those to be to be successful. But the short answer, says the aging parent here, you know, is working hard you know, and making sure that what you've done is recognised and appreciated by people. Okay, excellent. And then when you decided then to set up your own company, what drove you to do that? Well, I, so first of all, I've been fired from the job before. I had a, I had a dreadful relationship with my boss at the end in the end days at Wang Labs. Okay, and we just, we just didn't get on. And I, I didn't, I, his values, let me put it this way, his values and my values were, were not coincident. Uh, and I decided I would leave, but I was darned if I was going to leave quietly by just getting another job. So I concocted with my CFO the perfect way to leave, which was to offer to buy out the piece of the business that I was running that he was constantly complaining about. And my theory was, as I agreed with my CFO, either we would buy it or we would be fired, but either way, he would notice that we had gone and yeah. there'd be the drama there. Obviously, when I said that, I thought we were going to buy it. <laughs> it went spectacularly wrong, and we were fired. Well, I was fired. He was subsequently fired. It was quite dramatic being fired, I have to say. I don't recommend it to people. It's quite, it's, I mean, back to that spiral point, you know, it's one of those things that could be opening the door to going, going down, the, down that spiral. Mm. Luckily, I had a, a loving wife and family, and so there was the support mechanism there. It was an awful time. And, and, and the damage when you are fired is obviously economic, but more importantly, it's, it's, about, it's easier to self-esteem, I think, mm. the theme again. And you, you begin to wonder, worry, so does everybody like Ken because he's the senior vice president of Intergalactica, or do they like him because he's Ken? And the fear is actually it's, the, it's not because you're Ken, it's because you've got the title. Yeah. And I was offered a job uh, to do exactly the same thing that I've been doing for Wang, except that it involved flying to Atlanta every month instead of Boston. But other than that, it was the same, same pay, same car, same title, yeah. everything. Phew, self-esteem sorted. My neighbours need never know that I've been fired. Right. I would just say, as people do all the time, oh, well, you know, there's a reorganisation and I, was, I advised that I did. No, none of that stuff. I would just say, well, actually, I've switched jobs from A to B. Yeah. And I, I had the offer in front of me, and I'm sitting, the story's quite complicated because I, the way I was fired wasn't just I was fired. I had to do six months of sort of gardening. Oh, yes, of course. Where, yeah. I, where I came to work every day and did a stupid project for this bloke that I didn't like. <laughs> the whole thing was horrible, horrible. But it meant I got to keep my office and my PA and, my, and the access to the telephone and all those sort of things. So I'm sitting in my office. I've got this job off in front of me. Get my pen out. Self-esteem is on the way back up again. And I was just about to sign it. And a thing popped up on my shoulder, sort of imp that lives inside me. And it said, so, so you're going to spend the rest of your life working for great companies that someone else has created. And they folded its arms and looked at me. And we're looking out the window and thinking, you know, this is that moment. I'm, what if I was then 40, probably at the time. If I sign this, it's another 10-year job. I'll be 50. That's kind of a darn thing. And then we're going to start my own business. It's now. Do I really want to start my own business? These things on my, on my shoulder goes, well. <laughs> so I, so I, put the, I put the pen back again. 
and I phoned the person who thought I was about to sign the contract to go to work for them and said, well, I'm really sorry, I decided not to come. And he was really quite unpleasant about it. So thank you, little imp. <laughs> what a boot to get out of, out of the frying pan into the fire. Yeah. And, and at that moment, I thought I'd start my own business. I had a derisory settlement when I was fired. Uh, I, I admitted to say this chap had just, just driven the company into Chapter 11. So the other week, uh, so I decided I, I decided I was right about this. But anyway, never mind. He went into Chapter 11. Yeah. So I had a derisory uh, settlement, and I put it all into keeping my PA. I felt yeah. a certain obligation to her having just recruited her. <laughs> and moved back to the UK. And we rented an office in a basement, a damp basement, uh, albeit in Knightsbridge, before it sounds too <laughs> Okay. Uh, and I started Interregnum, which we floated, I floated six or seven years later. So it was that moment of, actually, this is the moment when you have to listen to your head or your heart. Right. And my head said, sign, because that told me. And my heart said, mm-mm. So uh, there's a huge lesson there, I think, which is when, when one gets to one of those crunch points, mm-hmm. your head and your heart will be in huge contention. And you have to decide at that moment which one you're going to follow. You told me, you shared with me your story about not being an accountant, having tried to be an accountant, and your heart said, no. Yeah. Actually, I say to people now, always follow your heart. That everybody mm-hmm. I know who really regrets something in their life, is it, they regret it because the decision they took was their head and not their heart. It was in mm-hmm. contradiction of their heart. So, short answer to your question, follow my heart, and here I am. That's amazing, because it really could have gone either way. How do I look like I'm successful before I get there? How do I maintain that image? And so how important would you say your image was at, a, at that time you were facing that? I think my image has always been important. So I, I, I do think that matters. If I can slightly hijack the point, I was talking to somebody about public speaking, and they came from South London somewhere, and I, I, found, I actually found it quite hard to understand what they were saying as they were speaking. Mm-hmm. I really had to concentrate on, on what they were saying. So afterwards, they were asking for feedback, and I said, well, actually, I tell you, I found it quite hard to understand what you were saying. You know, your mm-hmm. diction is less than clear. And the audience, that this thing booed me. Yeah. And I said, well, you know, how one speaks is a decision. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't, no one's born speaking, and, I, you know, I, did, I speak like this because this is how I want to speak. So I've made a decision as part of the Ken projection to speak this way. You have made a decision to speak the way you want to speak, the chat from South London. I said, that's okay. But when you're speaking to people, if you're going to speak in a way that they can't understand, why are you wasting your breath speaking? Yeah. Anyway, they went, mm, yeah, I see the, no, I see the point. Yeah. I said, you've got to remember that you're projecting yourself in the way you dress, the way you speak, the way you conduct yourself. That is you. And, and other people will judge you based on, on those factors. Mm. You're not going to do, do a DNA test. They're going to see how you do those things. Yeah. So you need to think about how you project yourself. And I, and I realized that, I forgot when, very, long, very, very long time ago. I worked for IBM. We were very careful about how we projected ourselves. Okay. So in fact, we all looked identical. <laughs> I, was, we, I was once traveling back with a, with a friend of mine from Bur- a meeting in Birmingham with a customer. Yeah. And we got all the way to uh, Houston Station. And he said, well, can I just ask you a question? And we said, well, yeah, of course, yeah, of course, we had a really good time on the way down. And he said, do you have a company shop? Now, we were just about to announce a chain of shops to sell typewriters. And it was a hush, hush, top secret. Yeah. So we both panic. This both <laughs> found that out. We go, oh, no, 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 not at all. No, no. retail, you know, we're, we're thinking now. And he said, I don't mean selling computers or typewriters. He said, I mean, do you buy your clothes from a <laughs> And we said, no, what a terrible idea. He said, it was just because you dress identically. And we looked at each other. We were two very different people dressed identically. So, so in IBM, we projected a, a, an image of what an IBM would look like. And I once went on a visit 
I forgot what it was, in Milan or somewhere, yeah. and I was going to be met at the airport by a fellow at IBM. So it's an airport full of people. We found each other. Oh, yeah, because <laughs> yeah. you did. It's recognisable because we're in the uniform. Yeah. So, so, so I think how one yeah. projects oneself in everything, yeah. conduct being as important as how you speak, how you dress and so on, is, is really key. And, I, and again, I would advise everybody to think that through because we judge... That's how we judge each other, isn't it? You see somebody coming towards you and you make a decision about them, first impressions, before you then get to the second and the third. Right. And the first is the most powerful. So a long answer question, yes is the short answer. Okay. Perfect. And, you know, we've spoken about a few of these, and I, think, I feel like you have mentioned it, but around guiding principles, I do like to ask the people that I interview, do you have three or, or more or less guiding principles that you use to make your career, business, life decisions? Well, you won't be surprised to hear yes. Yes, of course. <laughs> you also won't be surprised to hear you never get a short answer like that. So, <laughs> yes, but, well, actually, the best answer to that is when you when you get to the sort of level that I've got to in our society, having done the sort of things I've done, master my livery company, OPE, et cetera, et cetera, you can apply to get a formal coat of arms. Bear with me as I explain what this has got to do with the question. <laughs> okay. So think about the coat of arms a long, long time ago, you know, 10th century or whatever, it was when you're in battle, you need to be able to get your team, work out who your team was versus not. So the two ways of doing that, the coat of arms, and, and therefore the, on the shields and everything else, that's my lot, not your lot, yeah. teams. But also the motto, because you could shout the motto and people would know which side, which side you're on. Mm. So the, when you see someone's coat of arms, the motto at the bottom is as important as all the pictures they've chosen on the graphic. Oh, okay. I have a coat of arms, but the motto encapsulates essentially what I stand for and, and therefore my guiding principles. And it's do well, do good. And, and my mother instilled in me a sense that it, if you weren't any good at something, if you were no good at something, that was okay as long as you tried and proved you are no good at it. But to fail to try something was a beatable offence. And if you've done that, don't forget that lots of other people who need help and support. So do well, do your best in, in everything you do, but then use the power that comes from doing well to help other people, and that's the do do good bit. And those two principles, I mean, it's, it rolls off the tongue now. Yeah. It, it, my wife and I really distilled that when we came to design the coat of arms, yeah. but but those will be the two strands, I think, through that, that I can point back, actually back to school. Yeah, yeah, do well and do good, amazing. Another question is around advice so again you got a lot of questions people saying there's somebody in your position what advice would you give to someone that has been essentially stagnant for a few years and either wants to get promoted or jump out i know you mentioned follow your heart but are there are there any tips other tips or advice you'd give well yes you have to analyze why you're not getting promotion there are lots of reasons why you're not getting promotion one is you might be useless <laughs> and, and, and if you are you've got to acknowledge you're useless and perhaps do something about it you know that learn more things, change jobs, do something else like that. But you, there's no God-given right to be promoted. So, mm. so you, you have to earn a promotion. And earn means you've got to be able to demonstrate to the people who promote you that, that the, the cost-benefit for them is that the equation is the right way around. So the first thing you need to decide is, is the reason that I'm not being promoted me rather than something else? The second reason you might not be being promoted is you're in the wrong environment. It, it might not be you. It, it might well be the environment. So it might be you have a boss who is evil, to, to summarise a much longer range of bad bosses. Yeah. You might have a boss who, who's evil, in which case they're not going to promote you. you know, the relationship isn't there. It doesn't work properly. In which case you're in the wrong job. So, so don't, don't stay there banging your head against a brick wall for years and years and years not being promoted in the wrong job. Yeah. In fact, never work for a boss 
that you can't stand, who doesn't share your values. My own story, I mean, try not to be fired. There are more elegant ways of going. But, but you, 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 I once met somebody who said that every day they went to work, they left 60% of themselves at home. Wow. But I can't imagine that. Every day, I mean, I, I bound into work every day. You know, there's yeah. so much to do. It's so interesting. But I have had bad jobs and, and bad bosses, and I know that feeling. So, so first thing is it might be you. Second thing, it might be the environment. Okay. Third thing, it might be your performance. So not you, the person, and the capabilities, and not the people around you. It may, it may be the performance. And maybe yeah. you are not doing what you have to do to demonstrate that cost-benefit uh, uh, equation analysis for your boss. Yeah. It's got to be in their interests to promote you. Okay. So those, those, I think, are the three. And then there's the myth, which is I'm not being promoted because I'm a woman, I'm black, I'm a something, I'm a something. Well, I refer you back to the other three points. You know, if, if there's a, if you've got a boss who doesn't like people who are female or, or whatever, didn't go to their school, different color of skin or something, you're in the wrong job. Yeah. And there's no shortage of good jobs around, so go find a better better job. Yeah. But but it, 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 you, you need to do that analysis and just make sure that it, that it isn't in fact you, yeah. which is the most important thing. And I meet a lot of people over the years when I've managed them who want to be promoted because they've been there for some time. That isn't, yeah, you know, maybe in some roles that's the case, but not in the, not in the world that I operate in. Yeah. Oh, perfect. And then just last question is, are there any books, podcasts that you would recommend uh, for the listeners? Well, obviously this one. <laughs> yes, aside from this one. <laughs> um, I, now, this is a terrible thing to say. I, I have grown to have a serious aversion to business books and self-help books. Right, okay. That's uh, well, well, because they are almost all, well, at least almost the ones that I recall ever having bothered to read, they're actually about the, the, the star, the saint, the amazing person who's done remarkable things. Yeah. Like their, their life looks like that. Right, and actually, okay. the reality of life is it looks like this. Yeah. So all you end up is feeling inadequate right. as, as opposed to learning key messages. Now, that's a bit unfair. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are some great books that aren't quite that, that bad. Yeah. So yeah. if I was going to recommend one book, but it's probably not universally useful to, to, to your audience, but there's a, a book by a man called Jacques Attali, A-T-T-A-L-I, a Frenchman, which is the, the biography of Sigmund Warburg, who created Warburg's Bank in this country, right. which is one of the great merchant banks in history. Okay. And the merchant bank is essentially where the banker and the client share their risk and so and, 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 the, and the wealth, when it, or the reward when it comes. And it's very much what I model my yeah, last two businesses on. So, but Sigmund Warburg, the important thing about Sigmund Warburg is A, he was a pedant, so he wanted accuracy in everything. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's quite useful to read about a man who was so successful, who cared about where the apostrophe went and cared about where the full stop went and cared about these things. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. Yeah. It's about how you present yourself. It's, it's, it's a much bigger thing than just worrying about the rules of grammar. It makes a big statement that everybody works for you that actually precision matters, yeah. which is I find deeply attractive in things like airline pilots and surgeons and so on. I like them to think that, you know, don't be sloppy here, yeah. you get it precise. Yeah. And yet lots of walks of life, people don't seem to think that's important. It's really, really important. And you want to cut through in your career, you know, being precise, being accurate, being intellectual about things is key. But Warburg made one really important statement in this book, which has resonated with me throughout, well, actually throughout my professional career. I suspect you share it with me as two fellow salesmen. But he said to make someone your client you must first make them your friend. And I think that's such a powerful line. I, this yeah. business, all of us, it's about relationships. Absolutely. So, so I want people to know me, to understand me. I want to know and understand other people. I want to be able to build a relationship of trust, which is what a friend is, yeah. before I do business. 
with somebody. And yet in so many cases, people see the customer, the client as the enemy. They see their management as the enemy. They see their colleagues as the competition and so on. That, you know, no, no, trust is what, is what oils the wheels and binds society. So I was going to give anybody a, a book to read because it had a profound impact on me. It would be to read a book about Sigmund Warburg, okay. which has some of his negatives as well as his positives, rather than one by Sigmund Warburg, which of course would just be the fact he was a great hero. <laughs> yeah. And I, okay. th- I don't think his books are worth reading. Okay. Okay, interesting. Kenneth, thank you very much for your time. This has actually been excellent, very insightful. And yeah, so thank you. And I can't wait to release this. People are excited. I've told people already that you're, you're coming on. So yeah, I can't say anything else, but thank you very much. Brilliant. Well, so nice meeting you. Yeah, lovely to meet you. Cheers.